I keep seeing wherever I go these people who are incredibly um, talented uh, and have all this spark within them, but they're buying into a culture that says, okay, so here's what you do. And so for me, lighting up leaders is helping people to discover the light that was in them all along. I'm a speaker, I'm a writer, I'm a, a teacher and a facilitator with a, a focus on deep transformation. I don't think life is the, this thing where we discover the, the one truth that, that gets us going and then we're set. I think we keep stumbling onto obstacles, we keep stumbling on into barriers and into forks in the path where we can decide what society would say, this is the commonsensical path, or we can decide on the fork and the path that actually is right for us. We get told that something's not right with little whispers and then they become pebbles and they become boulders and it's like, man, there's a huge illness, you're not listening. We've got a part of our brain that is built to want to be able to rationalize and justify our decisions in a way that people pleases. And we've also got another part of our brain that's all about creativity and innovation and openness and curiosity. And you want to set a vision and make that a reality. I like to use the word happy. H stands for. So let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. Jenna. Mm. Thank you for joining us. I know it's you have a very a busy schedule. I'm very, very happy to be here with two intelligent, amazing, thoughtful men. Thank you. Um, both Amin and I are big fan of your work. Mm. And thank you for spreading positivity, love, generosity, and especially authenticity, which is very rare. Thank you. What comes out of that, though, is that we know what you do for work, but the real question we try to answer is, who are we? So, who is Gemma? <laughs> oh, I love how you start with the small questions. <laughs> uh, I think... I've heard once that the definition of maturity is being able to hold two competing positions at the same time. So I feel like to answer that question, I need to do that in that I'm a human being and we're, we're all made of love and light and stardust and we're no more special than anyone else. And at the same time, I think we have these unique personalities and strengths and, and gifts and purposes, which is why we're here in a particular lifetime. And for me, it seems to be, for whatever reason, I, I seem to have this <clears throat> ability to give people little keys along the way to help them stumble onto or find or choose their right path and to have that lit up and to overcome the obstacles in the way. And I seem to do it best through words, through speaking and writing and teaching, uh, sometimes singing, but I actually think that's just something I do for fun. So... To describe myself, I would say I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm a writer, I'm a, a teacher and a facilitator with a, a focus on deep transformation, but transformation in a way that makes it feel easy and joyful and purposeful. So all the things you've described, you was uh, a writer, singer, mm. those are the things you do. Yeah. Do they describe who you are? 
probably not. They describe what I do, which is the avenue through which I choose to channel who I am. Um, and I guess in that way, who I am is, um, I hope, a light bringer and a gentle kick up the arser and um, someone who tries her best to be the best person I can be and to do what I'm here to do, whatever that happens to be. In your website, uh, lighting up leaders is a common theme. Mm. What does that mean to you? Well, I, I keep seeing wherever I go these people who are incredibly um, talented uh, and have all this spark within them, but they're buying into a culture that says, okay, so here's what you do. You, for instance, finish uni and then you get a job and then you find a partner and then you climb a ladder. And I keep bumping into these leaders and by leader, I mean anybody who's actually um, leading a life uh, or leading others. I keep bumping into these wonderful people who say that they are stuck on this hamster wheel of overwork and overwhelm and they're just feeling flat um, and and like they are stuck in a rut so deep that they can't see their way out of that rut. And so for me, lighting up leaders is helping people to discover the light that was in them all along. They've just kind of they've thrown blankets over and I keep getting these visuals of everyone as, as a beautiful shining lamp. And over the years, stuff happens, you know, trauma and stories we tell about ourselves and limiting beliefs that we, we build up over the years. And it's like blankets over the top of these lamps. And my, what I like to help people to do is to remove those lamps to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, there is this light within me. And once I've rediscovered it and re-energized and refueled, what do I want to do with that light? So I help to spark the light in others. That's very interesting. And the first thing came to mind is, have you been down that right yourself before? And is that what really helps you to connect with I, those who are stuck? Absolutely. I've been down that path multiple times and I still find myself down that path because I, I don't think life is the, this thing where we discover the, the one truth that, that gets us going and then we're set. I think we keep stumbling onto obstacles. We keep stumbling on into barriers and into forks in the path where we can decide what society would say, this is the commonsensical path or we can decide on the fork and the path that actually is right for us and that lights us up. And there have been multiple times where I have stayed on a path that doesn't light me up for way too long because I thought it was the right thing to do, because I thought it was societally rewarded or culturally lauded because I'd get recognition and reward for it. It's not, I've learned the hard way and I have to keep relearning it and keep relearning it that actually what is most um rewarding for me is to choose that path that actually lights me up rather than the path that others would say is the commonsensical path to take. How hard is it to do that? It gets easier and easier, I think, the more you do it and the more you realise that once you've done it and it's worked out and then you do it again and it's worked out, and, oh my gosh, it worked out again. Um, but I think what you have to keep paying attention to 
are the signs that occur as you start to go down a path that isn't right for you. So I think I'm getting better and better at going, oh, I'm feeling a bit flat. I'm feeling a bit grumpy. I'm, I'm uh, feeling like I actually would rather stay in bed and watch repeats of West Wing and maybe drink a vodka at 12 p.m. Once I start feeling that, it's like something's going on here and I catch it earlier. And I, I do think because we've got this culture that just says keep on keeping on and quitting is for losers and all that, I think we don't often enough take a step back and going, actually, is this the right path for me? Am I enjoying myself? Am I feeling lit up? And if I'm not, what are the little steps I can take to make that a reality for me? And so we go down this path for way too long and then it's a huge call just say you, you've been navigating this career and and lifting yourself up the ladder for decades it is a huge call to go oh damn I'm on the wrong ladder I should have been on a different ladder but now I've got 25 years experience in the industry and I need to start here so I really am a big advocate for um, making the call early to try something different if it's not working think you've described catch you moments catch you moments is that kind of what they are as warning signs yeah yeah absolutely I, I do I heard somewhere many years ago that we get told that something's not right with little whispers and then they become pebbles and they become boulders and it's like man there's a huge illness you're not listening um, and we have to then so it's like if we're not listening to the little whispers as they come in they'll get louder and louder until there's a huge situation that forces us to change our path so I'd rather listen to whispers just because I like my life to be easy <laughs> guilty of that myself I've ignored a whisper for quite some time and it recently hit me pretty hard yeah, and um, we're talking about this with a friend is, you know, when you ignore your gut for too long, yeah. it always comes back stronger. It does. And in form, forms and formats that are perhaps less palatable than it first reaches out to us in. Is that right? I mean? Spot on. Okay. Spot on. Um, yeah. Going through it right now and yeah. um, literally just harder and harder every time it returns. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's really funny how the human, I guess, race sometimes has struggled to accept or believe that um, because there's nothing rational about it. You know, there's nothing societally systematic about that decision. Um, say, oh, my gut feel is not really convincing enough today. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And I, I think we are... We've got a part of our brain that is built to want to be able to rationalise and justify our decisions in a way that people pleases um, and in a way that keeps us safe. And we've also got another part of our brain that's all about creativity and innovation and openness and curiosity. And that part of our brain is going, oh, you could go here. And the other part, the left side of our brain is going, yeah, but this might happen. And then you'll end up, you know, feeding cat food to your kids because you've run out of money and we start to catastrophize. Um, and so I, I think for me, there is always that push pull of, yes, you could do this, but no. And yes, you could do this, but it doesn't make sense. And yes, you could do this, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work out perfectly, which is what one part of our brain wants. And that's the part we've been conditioned to listen to. You, you were in consultancy after you finished your PhD. And then uh, I'm assuming you had this moment where you're like, okay, this is not right for me. 
Um, I finished my PhD. I actually went into uh, recruitment consulting and management consulting yeah. with a big firm. Yeah. And then I had a, a moment where um, I was pregnant with my second child and she almost died in the womb. She actually only had a 40% chance of surviving. And it was at, at that moment where I was also at, pregnant with a child that might not survive attending the funeral of another child who just died. And it was just bang, 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 bang. This, it's life's way too short to be doing something that actually isn't just not lighting me up, it's exhausting me. And I remember still, still going to work one day and seeing this piece of bitumen in the sunshine and going, God, that looks comfortable. I could just lie there all day. <laughs> so it, it took a big moment and that's when I started my first business, which was Inkling, uh, Inkling Women. Um, and then I had eight years of that and six years felt wonderful and it took two years to go, actually, this isn't right again and I need to, to um, sell my half and start something new. So you arrived and you said it would get easier each time. Yes, and I still look back and think I could have been braver and called it sooner, but I didn't want to rock the boat. So I feel like I've learnt how to make courageous decisions that perhaps fly in the face of what's expected of you and got a little bit better at it each time, but I'm still nowhere near perfect at it. So what advice would you give to someone who is very early on in their career? Yeah. Not asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> and they may be feeling um, the same way at this point of time. Yeah. How would you encourage them to listen to that voice and be brave? I would encourage them to listen to it and start small. So to ask questions like, okay, if I was just, let me play with the possibility that I'm going to fully listen to that voice. What would that voice have me do? And let's assume everything's going to work out beautifully and I'll be guaranteed a fabulous salary and I'll be able to pay the mortgage and my career won't go down the toilet, etc. What would I do? And then I would take tiny little steps in that direction because I think the universe does reward action um, and momentum. But I do think there is this school of thought that says, listen to your gut and just throw everything out and just forge a new career when you've got no experience and no guarantee of any money coming in. I think we should be able to have this huge vision of doing something that lights us up. But I think the way to trick ourselves into doing it without absolutely crapping ourselves is by taking tiny little steps. Thank you. I've done a beautiful day-long workshop with you. I've got to hear the more thorough, detailed version of this, and I can see you trying to escape that one. You don't want to get into it. You're just you know going. You know. I know where you're going. I know you too. I think I think it was called the Happy Framework, or is that what you called it? Yes, Happy for setting a vision. Mm. Yeah. Do you want me to run? Yeah, that? please. I think so. Okay. Um, so when you want to set a vision and make that a reality, I like to use the word happy. Um, and obviously that's an acronym. So if you think of happy going vertically, H stands for head to alpha. So this is where if our, if our brains are in beta brain waves, which is the analysis brain waves, the find what's not going to work brain waves, the narrow and focused down brain waves, we're going to come up with a vision for our lives that 
is safe and that isn't going to rock the boat uh, but also is probably not going to be what we're actually here to do. And so we get our head into alpha brainwaves, which is all about creativity and innovation and openness. And we just do that by breathing slowly um, and by having a soft gaze or soft focus. So it's the H. Um, a is ask with curiosity. So you can ask yourself questions like, ah, that's what we were talking about before I leave. What, what could I do that would completely light me up? Um, what would be an amazing life? Even if it only felt 20% doable, there are a series of questions I like to ask. And there is this amazing thing that when you ask a question, sometimes the answer just appears. Have you had that before? Mm. Where you're just like, ah, oh, I, wonder, I wonder what would happen if... It happened to me um, not that long ago where I was going, I wonder how you get onto Clubhouse, this new social media platform. And within two minutes, my friend Arkella had texted me saying, Gem, I've got an invitation for Clubhouse. I had your name written all over. I'm like, oh, thank you. So sometimes just asking is enough. Um, but the next P stands for play with the possibilities um, and just really see what's possible and then pause in the feeling of having got it. And I had this weird moment where I was really focusing on the fact that I wanted to sell my second business and I wanted it to be fair and equitable. And I was pausing in the feeling. I remember I was at home just going, I wonder what that would feel like. And I was really pausing it and feeling into what would a fair and equitable sale of this business look like. And I heard this bang on the door and I opened it. I was a bit shocked. And it was this postman on the veranda with a motorbike and an envelope saying, Gemma, this is for you. And it was a, a bank check and an offer for the sale of the business that was really fair, really equitable. So again, sometimes pausing in the feeling is enough. And then the why of happy stands for say yes to aligned opportunities. Because I do think we fill our lives up so full that we don't have space to actually pay attention to those little things like, oh, someone says, do you want to meet up for a coffee? And we go, no, 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 I'm too busy. Or little intuitions like, you should go to this cafe. I've had that happen a few times and you met the exact right person. So anything that comes in that feels exciting, you say yes to. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. So this is where I tested. <laughs> No, um, yeah, I personally refer to the notes I took from that workshop and I think it was just the idea of going back to it and, you know, referring to, right, that's what I thought at that moment in time and I remember we actually wrote down, I see myself, I see myself doing this by this date. Yes. Um, it's interesting to see some of the things I actually achieved um, yeah. and I think it was the next level of, like, manifestation it's also action and also pausing and creating the space. Yeah. Um, I thought personally it was a great framework. I mean, this is to answer Ali's question, how to the people who are in their early careers. That's one way, I guess. But, um, yeah. So I clearly have, um, are, sorry, inspiring a lot of people on a daily basis with your writing and speaking. Mm. Um, and... Being, being from a psychology background yourself, you realize you, you would know that a lot of our personal traits and, and values and habits are created within us in when we are kids. Mm -hmm. So, how was your childhood? I had all in all a pretty lovely childhood in that I've got parents who 
loved me and love me. Um, they always gave me plenty of freedom just to do what I felt like doing. They were the opposite of helicopter parents. They're like, oh, you'd be fine. <laughs> you know, just head off and that's totally fine. And I was driving cars at 11 and, you know, <laughs> doing things that I probably shouldn't have done. Um, and I also think uh, there were such wonderful things that shaped who I am now, including singing and performing and touring from a very young age. So I, I really, I, I learned very early on how to engage audiences and how to be on stage. And I'm so grateful for that. And also the camaraderie and friendship of, of um, musicians is amazing. And the, the crappy things about my childhood, including bullying and ostracism and um, a few years where I just really had no friends and I was an annoying kid. Like I was a kind of, um, precocious, strong-willed child, and I think that would have got on people's nerves. And the result of it was that I didn't have friends for, for quite a while, and the result of that was me going, oh, how can I get friends, and then starting to read a self-help book, which was the first of thousands, <laughs> and that then propelled me onto this path uh, and made me just – it fascinated me how we can – learn how to be happy and successful and fulfilled and I I got um, addicted to it quite quickly and I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now had I not had those tough years. Is that what really propelled you towards the PhD or was that kind of happening like alongside? Um, the, no in that, so the, the ostracism and bullying happened relatively early on. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I was at uni, I, was, I had a beautiful group of friends and, and things were feeling much better. To be honest, the PhD really was, oh, I don't know what else to do and I really like to study and I'm interested in this, so I'm just going to keep going. I didn't have a sense then of, oh, there's something I want to be out there doing in the world. And I thought at that stage I'd be an academic for the rest of my life um, and then relatively quickly went, oh, it's a bit too much navel-gazing and I'd rather be doing stuff than just writing and researching and talking about it. So the PhD was just a next step because it was there. On your LinkedIn, you wrote recovering academic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I read that, I'm like, what does she mean by this? <laughs> well, recovering in that um, I love to dive deep and analyse much to the consternation of sometimes, my sometimes long-suffering fiancé. Um, and some, I'm learning to not always have to dive so deep and be so serious and take things so seriously. So I've, I've, I've cultivated I've cultivated joy relatively early on, but lightness and and being easygoing, that's something that, that's taken a bit longer to learn. <laughs> More spontaneous? Yeah, I think I used to be quite a... Control freak is a bit too harsh, but on that spectrum, if that makes sense. And I, I do think my partner has taught me, because 
But if you know Myers Briggs, he is so much a P. We talk about his big penis. Like he's just, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much P. <laughs> um, and me as this J who is just always, always about the lists and the schedules. And for the first couple of years, I was going, what is happening? But actually I've learned, and I think we've rubbed off on each other. I've learned the joy in just going, ah, I just feel like doing this and to hell with the schedule and just actually allowing what wants to happen in each moment to happen. I think when you're in the moment and you probably, I'm sure you would have felt this, but tell me if you didn't, when you actually allow it to be what it wants to be, all sorts of magic can happen. Whereas if you've had that schedule and you've been like, oh, okay, no, sorry. Um, I just got this amazing opportunity, but uh, this half hour I'm meant to be folding laundry. <laughs> I do think, <laughs> again, that space. And and for me, I'm, I've learned to not put myself under such pressure if Again, it's a paradox. I do believe in rocking up and doing the best you can. So if you've got a commitment, you do it. But I also believe in having days where there are no commitments. And it's like, well, what do I actually feel like doing today? And then the writing just comes or an idea for a book just comes or, oh, I actually feel like picking up the phone and calling this person just comes, which leads to a fabulous collaboration. When we are overly scheduled, we don't have those pockets of freedom for the good stuff to kind of come in. I'm just laughing because <laughs> I'm more the free spirit, go with it. But I've had to learn to structure a bit more, obviously, because it doesn't work professionally like that. Everyone's got calendars. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the interesting, I think, takeaways personally is writing this massive task list. And then there are a few tasks that just sit there on the first page, the second page, to the third page, which will drive you both nuts. And then I come to do it. But then when I come to do it, I realized that was actually the best time to do it. And sometimes it's meeting with people. Sometimes it's looking into something that's recently changed. Yeah. And I go, there is something inside me just did not want me to do this task. And it's not what people think, oh, you're lazy. It is not laziness. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like to call it your interconnectedness to the universe. Yeah. That's my spiritual side. Um, is sometimes things just you know they look at you and you go like mm, not ready yeah not ready now's not the right time mm -hmm. and i do i do think procrastination i mean it comes in a variety of forms but mm -hmm. i think there are two main reasons for it one is exactly what you're saying it's like it's not the right time right now so let's wait for the right time and then i do think there are times where we look at a task and go mm, that's going to take me to the next level and I'm a bit nervous about that. So I'm just going to put it off. And I, I try to distinguish between the two different types of procrastination. And when it's something that's like, actually, I'm just terrified of this. I usually just give myself five minutes. Do you find this a mean? And then you start it and then you're fine. It's, it's like you just needed to get past the, the barrier. But then there are others where you just go, Ugh, it just feels wrong to do it today. So things that make me feel scared, I try and do things that just feel wrong. I try to put off for another time. Mm. I like that differentiation, scary versus wrong. Mm. Um, very mindful of time, so we want to jump into the next topic we want to touch upon, which is uh, performance. Mm. And you have done a lot of coaching, a lot of big companies. Um, my question was, how would you recommend someone go about um, building a high-performing team, mm. what, what constitutes a high-performing team? Mm. I think there are a few elements. One is that you 
help your team to get very clear on what their strengths are as individuals. And strengths aren't just what they're good at. It's actually what gives them energy, what helps them to feel strengthened while they're working. So you help them get clear. You yourself are very clear on the strengths of your team, but also their aspirations. And then where you can, you, you delegate work that plays to not only your people's strengths but also their aspirations and when you do that you then have permission to give exceptional quality feedback which includes hey when you did that it worked well for this reason but just so you know when you're doing this this is the impact and I think a lot of uh, leaders they'll think they're giving good feedback when they say that was great well done but you can't do anything with that or yeah that could be a little better and if you don't Give your team members specific feedback about what they did well, what they're doing well, and where they can be even better than they are now in service of their strengths and their aspirations. That to me, if you can do that with all your team members, you have an exceptionally high performing team. The other thing is creating an environment where people love to come into work. And for that, it requires a vision for what the team is doing and why they're doing it and getting people buzzed to be a part of that. They, to me, are the ingredients. Mm. How about the team member? Like, mm. How do they go about really understanding how they can perform better and be that really good member of the team? I would, I would encourage them to look at their strengths first so that they can play to their strengths more. I would encourage them to not try too hard to fix their weaknesses, but instead to actually just make sure their weaknesses are no longer a liability and then focus fully on their strengths because you only achieve maximum potential when you're harnessing your strengths, not when you're trying to fix your weaknesses. And the other thing I would do is actually do a self-analysis of where am I at now, where do I want to be, what are the gaps, and who and how, who can help me and how can I help myself bridge those gaps um, by asking for help and by learning, but have a very clear plan in place. This is where I'm at now. This is where I want to be. Here are the gaps. How do I address them? Mm. I, I recently did a, a, a test called the DISC profile. Yeah, I know the DISC. And within that, uh, it contained my uh, strength and weaknesses, but also my energizers and de-energizers. Mm -hmm. So my energizer and energizers are learning and mm. efficiency. At first, when I got that, I looked at it, I'm like, mm, my job doesn't have either of these, right? But as I looked at it in more, in, in more depth over time, I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't, it may not necessarily have it, but I can incorporate it, like have it created within my day-to-day -day task when I, when I come across a, a new email or a, set, a, a term or, or a, a new concept, I'll go about learning that concept yes. instead of just like, doesn't really relate to my role. Yeah, and you're actually you're doing one of the top tips in terms of working with your strengths, which is to use a strength to overwhelm a weakness or use a strength to enjoy something more. And I cannot stand emails, for instance. I don't like being in my inbox, but if I can see it as a writing task, like, oh, I love writing, I get to do that, then that helps. So I, th I think you've taken a tip that's out there and you've made it your own. Mm. So I, what I do is, once I get this email and then I see something that I find interesting, I go about creating some notes of it and then writing a summary for myself. Wow. I really love that process. Yeah, I may be 
sitting on an email for five minutes instead of just one minute. Yes. But at the end of the day, I've realized that I have this huge, like this, all of these new learnings are sitting in the back of my head. But what's very interesting is over time, I'm realizing I'm becoming more and more aware of my organization, what are we up to and where are we going, where are we heading from an economic perspective, which I've never had any idea about. Absolutely. And what I love also is that not only you're learning, you're being very efficient about your learning. <laughs> you just like a system. To, I was just about to say the engineering side of you kicked in because you said efficiency and learning. I think you're efficiently learning, my friend. Absolutely. <laughs> um, which is a good segue. I mean, it's great you're doing that. I suspect everyone else on the team, and I'm not talking about where you currently work, but let's say hypothetically a team you work with and you're running with that practice. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I will have to quote Simon Sinek here is, you know, um, high-performing teams, and people always refer to Navy as being one of the most high-performing teams. But one of the fascinating things about that team in particular, because everyone looks at that, mm. you know, as the pedestal, is your performance, you know, uh, being your y-axis on the one side of the chart, and then your trust mm. being on the x-axis. And basically the summary is when they build their teams and people move on along the process, it's not just based on high-performing individuals, it's actually based on trust as well. So the question is, high-performing teams does always mean high-performing individuals? I completely agree. subscribe? Okay. Oh, I completely agree with that. One thing I would say, and this is based, and I do some, still do some work with exec teams on creating a buzzing, collaborative, trusting culture. Um, <laughs> you can tell an organisation and whether there's trust there by whether or not they actually have to say the word trust. So a team or organisation that's saying we need to build trust doesn't tend to have trust there. If there's trust, no one talks about it. It just is um it's just there so there's no reason to bring it up whereas if you if you're kind of saying oh gosh we need to build trust with each other then clearly clearly there is a problem and and for me the the trust element is about everyone ideally doing what they say they will but also rocking up as authentic individuals and not putting on the work armor because you know how some people just put on this work armor and we've got these bs meters like ding 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 no no no, you are not being yourself if you've got anyone in the team that's like that trust will diminish straight away so authenticity and vulnerability and openness and honesty they for me are the hallmarks of, of building a trusting team it's, it's more of a top-down process isn't it, or is it it's definitely top down um but it doesn't mean bottom up doesn't also uh add to the mix as well. But I, I do think we're, we're taught to learn from and to mimic our leaders with social learning theory. It's just how we're built. And so the leaders set the tone, the leaders set the energy. Um, and therefore, it's incredibly important that the leaders are rocking up as these authentic, open, um, trustworthy individuals so the, the team can take their lead from them. What role does language play in building trust? Hmm. I've literally never thought about this before. So give me some thinking music. I need the perfect match music. Um, 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 you can sing. <laughs> can you not hear it, Ali? <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to answer this question by talking about my partner, which seems like a really roundabout way of answering this, but um uh relatively early on in our 
relationship. We were playing this game. Don't tell me what the, don't ask me what the context was because I don't know. But he had to devise a nickname for me with the initials SG. And me being a Leo and, and words being very important to me and language being very important to me, I was thinking, oh, he's going to say sexy goddess or something like that. Instead, he came up with stubborn gnome. I was like, oh, right, okay. And this was just one example of many times where he hasn't chosen the language that would actually lift me up or he's not he's not particularly complimentary. He's he's not one to use words the way I might use words. And I realized also in that moment that what he always does is his energy is completely loving and he will always do what he says he will do. And the way he loves me through his actions, energy doesn't lie, actions don't lie, but words can lie. So I do think there is a place, and as a writer you can, and a speaker, you can imagine, I do think language is incredibly important to generate excitement and to build a collective vision. But if it's not backed up by doing what you say you will and by this energy that actually is inclusive and inspiring, then you won't get anywhere. It'll just be words and they'll fall flat because words can lie, but energy and actions can't. That's a great answer. Because I'm reading a book called Cultural Leadership. I'm not sure if you come across that. No. And it really emphasises on, on the language. Mm. But the way he talks, he, um, the author, for what he's saying at the moment, uh, says that you can divide organization into five stages. Mm -hmm. And in first, second, and third stages, all you hear is an I language. I did this, mm -hmm. I want to go here, this is my goal. Where in the fourth and fifth stage, you start talking about we. Mm -hmm. Where you go, we want to go here as a collective. Mm -hmm. Or this is our goal, this is our mission. And that's why I asked, but you put a very different spin on it. I like it. Thank you. Well, and, and as with anything, I think it's both. Because mm -hmm. I agree with you. I still remember working with someone who, She'd been working in our organisation back when I was in management consulting for, I think, a year. And she would she would refer to we as her past colleagues in her past organisation. I'm like, oh, there's something really wrong about that, whereas we were the they. I do think pronouns, and funnily enough, I did a whole thesis on the importance of pronouns using discursive psychology. So that sort of thing is really important and it has to be backed up with actions and energy. Yeah. Well, a lot of thoughts my head I can't actually verbalize them in the moment as you guys are talking I was like oh that explains a lot of things happening um I'm very blessed to be part of a very trusting team and I actually just realized when you said people say the word trust when they need it the most and it just hit me now I was like I haven't heard that word around at all no and it was just like a good moment of realization oh shoot okay I guess clearly we trust each other well you don't you don't need to say it why why would you say it because even if you're going, oh, gosh, isn't it wonderful we all trust each other, you don't even tend to have that thought. You just go, I just love working here. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a really good team. You don't necessarily make the link of it's because we all trust each other because you just do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, a recent topic that's come into my head quite often lately, and this is a, the second person I asked this question from, is conflicting goals. Mm, yeah. um, I've always been very driven in terms of where I want to go because of my background educate myself or, or travel even when I was a kid. So when I come to Australia, I'm like, oh, this is my opportunity. This is the land that I can do what I want. So I got very driven on that aspect, like I'm going to do my career and I'm going to get what I want to get, get in, in this amount of time. But then I go home last month and I'm like, I don't know my experience. Yeah. 
So I'm like, I come back and I'm sitting in, 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 in solitude and, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to go about things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk to my siblings every once a week, at least one hour, to see where mm-hmm. they do and what, what they are. I'm like, well, there's a voice in my head that says, dude, you could be working. So what are your thoughts on confl- conflicting goals? Oh, it's, it's so, I, I find them fascinating. And I, again, I'll probably say two things that I believe will sound conflicting, but I think you can put them together. One is that I was listening to a Tim Minchin podcast the other day and he talked about the fact that he really loves his wife and he's made a conscious choice to make the right, what he believes is the right choice of monogamy and marriage and family over all these other choices that he also really, really, really wants. And I do think in our lives we have to do that sometimes. You know, I I, I love sugar. I love pastries. I would love to spend all day, every day eating them, but I also love feeling fit and healthy. And so I put that choice over. And so, yes, life does present us with um, a necessity of choosing what we really want over other things we also really, really want. At the same time, though, I think there is this cultural myth that whatever choice we make, we need to go hardcore with it. So it's like, (laughs) don't know if you've ever done a, right, it's Monday and I'm going to be vegan and I'm going to go to the gym seven times a week and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So it's like, let's be hardcore. When actually you can still have your choice of working really hard. And if you think about it, an hour a week to talk to your siblings, that's not going to change this choice of focusing on growth and learning. If anything, you can you can um, come up with reasons why it's going to help you because they might give you an insight back into who you are and what's important to you that will drive your career to all sorts of places. So my answer is we do have to make what seems like competing choices and sometimes they are hard down the middle competing choices. But at other times, I think we we mis- we uh, make the mistake of going too hardcore on them and not considering how can I actually bring these choices together and just soften the edges just a little bit. That's actually a good point. Um, I've got this actually five hours a week. It's not only one because I've got a few oh seconds. one per. I beg yeah. your pardon. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. But even with that, because this is my first week actually doing it, I've realised this actually filling my cup so much. Yeah. And I've suddenly have found few friends that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. And and that I do think that there is nothing better for high performance than feeling filled up because from that place you can give a lot. Whereas if you feel empty and you're running on empty, there's nothing in the tank to give. So sometimes it is worth, in fact, all the time, I think it's worth investing in activities that will fill up. So, and I think that will keep you alive, dude. Uh, I read an article by an ex um, Westpac CEO, I mm. her name right now. And she Gail had, Kelly? Yes. Yeah. Yes, her. And she one of her one of the seven lessons she's learned as a leader was to be spiritually genius. Sorry, generous. Spiritually generous. So going back to that, how can I can't be spiritually generous if it's not filled with something in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I do, I think there are a lot of people who um, feel like it's their duty to almost lay down and just go, just just take me, just use me, use me up. But actually, and I see this in parents a lot. I don't think either of you are parents yet, but I, I do see it in, in parents where we just go, all right, I'm going to give everything to my work and everything to my kids. 
And the question is, what example are you setting for your kids? Do you want them to be doing the same thing if they find themselves in this situation 20, 25 years down the track? Um, I was going to take a different twist to the question you asked around the goals, um, which is going back to the happy vision that you spoke about, mm. I think, earlier, because I always thought with goals, if they're not aligned to a vision um, that you really mm. see yourself living, like fully visualized it, it's there. Um, I question if they're the right goals. Um, I do too. You know, and I struggle to do that without thinking about my spiritual side, which goes back, like when you said spiritually generous, I was like, oh, wow, that's a nice way to articulate what I was feeling like two, three minutes ago. And what's interesting about workplace goals mm. and organizational goals is, ooh, okay, no, like this is your rational side, this is your you know, um, analytical side, um, which is again, interesting because we bring our whole self to work yeah. or to a family gathering. Um, and I haven't been paying attention. I think last time we went on a strategy day, the facilitator just, you know, rocked up to me and he's like, so I hear, um, you're the spiritual one here. So tell me more. And I went, what, who, who used that word? And then I realized my colleagues thought that mm-hmm. and then a few days ago, someone's birthday there in the office and then both of us were like the most spiritual two people walk into the room and we went to hug you know like the birthday uh birthday girl and everyone's like i oh, hear the hug is in the room <laughs> and it just hit me that you know you can bring your spiritual side to the to the work environment it's not about just our oh, free-spirited like our oh, life is good and energies and vibes this is not what that's about mm-hmm. it's actually about you being more aligned to your goals more aligned to who you want to become. Yeah. And if you feel that aligned at work, you are going to kick ass. I, That's my recent experience. But oh, And, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I do a lot of work with organisations helping their people to um, see change as an opportunity and to manage it with grace and ease. And we, <laughs> as part of the programs I run, there's often individual work. And one of the most common questions I get asked is, do I answer for my work self or my not work self? And I'm like, it's the same person. Uh, And to me, I I think that if you think of the people you admire most, you wouldn't say they've got a work self and a not work self. They're actually successful because they bring their whole self to work with their faults and their flaws and their interesting hugging techniques. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Actually, that may be inappropriate to say. Yes. There's a hugging technique. There's a hug, a genuine hug, period. Um, But I I do think we've got this weird thing where we we feel like we have to present um, almost a caricature of ourselves at work instead of going, this is just me. You're going to get me faults and flaws and interesting qualities and all. And when we are completely authentic at work, as with anywhere, then we build trust because people actually want to work with us. We build better relationships. And because being any other version other than who we are is exhausting to maintain, we've got more energy as well. So we become higher performance because we've got more energy because we're being ourselves. So it's this virtuous cycle upwards. We have uh, a newly added tradition to our podcast Mm -hmm. where you, uh, the previous guest has left your question to answer. What a great tradition. So uh, I'm going to play that question for you. Okay. 
the memory, it was a toughish one. <laughs> so I would get the alpha and the beta juices going. <laughs> to know I'll beg your pardon okay mm. the one thing I love most in the world is they feel like they perhaps feel like small moments at the time because they're nothing you're not achieving anything it's nothing that's going to end up on your resume or in an award but it's those small tiny moments of connection with other human beings where it's like your hearts align and the energy just flows between you and it, it can be with anyone it can be with someone who's serving you at a restaurant or it can be with your partner at home or your children or your friends but those I feel like the thing I love most but I think the thing that's most meaningful about life is those little small moments of deep connection and as for what I would give them up for <laughs> I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could because to me that's what life is all about. And uh, one final question for you, Gemma. It's a hard one. Imagine it's your um, funeral mm. and uh, there will be a lot of people gathering there. Mm. How would you like to be remembered on that day? God forbid. It'll happen one day to all of us. Um, I would like to be remembered as someone who provided the right words and the right love and the right help at the right time. Literally a beacon of light. Um, I think we have to wrap it up. And as I said, I would love to keep going. <laughs> but there is something left called calendars, schedules, and reality, <laughs> which, by the really? way, does not exist in my world. <laughs> but I, I did have to learn how to succumb to it. I just want to say this was a beautiful, beautiful, um, you know, hour of my day. Um, thank you for coming down and um, sharing with us your story. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it just gave me a lot of perspective, particularly right now at this stage of my life that's wonderful it was a beautiful hour of my day too so thank you to the two of you thank you Jen. our stories are the building blocks of who we are and we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are thank you for listening please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.